There we go. So, welcome to the Friday evening uh, uh, happy along. <laughs> um, today, I've been talking to uh, Achan um, uh, Pratep, and he has a bad cough today and so is not going to join us. He's ill. Uh, but I had kind of thought about talking about this even before he uh, uh, backed out. And so uh, one of the things that I'd like to tell you guys about it that um, is probably not very well known. And that is, is that uh, monks generally don't like to talk about jhana. If you'll notice, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa only talks about it uh, kind of on the side. Uh, and the reason for this is because uh, in the Paddy Mork, uh, there are training rules about uh, not revealing the state that a monk has attained. And there are several reasons why that's there. One of them is, is that ordinary people uh, think that it's sort of magical to be around uh, monks who have attained something or another. And that in Thailand, it's really strange in the sense that they want to find the best monk uh, and then uh, feed him on his birthday. That in fact, there's, a, there's actually a click that got started of people all over the country would go to a particular month because it was his birthday. Pardon? Your voice is robot again. I'm not sure if it's just for me. Is anybody else experiencing Yeah, you're, you're increasingly turning into a cyborg. Okay, yes. Is this plugged in the microphone now? Is that better? No. No. Yeah, it's about the same. All right, let me try another microphone. Now, this is the microphone on the headset. Is that any better? A lot better. Yep. A lot better? You're okay. reincarnated as a human being. All right, I'll inform Elon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a good friend of mine. I only um, uh, associate with the very wealthy. He's very wealthy with money. Everybody else is wealthy with the Dhamma. <laughs> so anyway, I don't know how much to start over again. But I was talking about the, the fact that monks generally don't like to talk about jhanas uh, or any kind of attainments uh, because um, the rules are in the Paddy Monk that monks are not supposed to advertise. And so um, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa actually uh, fasted on his birthday and, and it began to, to wind up that everybody at the Wat fasted on the birthday, and so no, none of the monks go on Bindabat. The kitchen is closed, 
and that anybody who's a resident of the Watt has to actually leave the Watt if they want to eat on Vicky Budabasu's birthday. It's a fast day, but it got started because uh, originally on his birthday, the place was overwhelmed with people who would only show up because it was his birthday. Um, and so uh, this, these, these topics are often then avoided by the monks just in case the people get the idea that because he can talk about it, that he's got it. An example of that um, I thought of was a high school algebra teacher. Now, high school algebra teachers don't go around advertising, I know algebra, I know algebra. But you would assume that the kids who were listening to him doing x square plus y square is equal to z square at least assumes that he knows something about it. Okay. And so um, this, this topic is then generally not well discussed, which means that then the lay people who need instructions in this go without because the monks avoid these kind of topics. Now, the next thing to say is, is that the word Samatha or Samantha actually appears in uh, the uh, Majjhima Nikaya on an infrequent basis to where the word Vipassana is almost never used. I haven't seen an actual usage of the word Vipassana in the Majjhima Nikaya, except with chapter headings that the Western monks in their translations put in there as a kind of a, a chapter heading saying, this section is about Vipassana. That's especially true in Sutta number 10, um, in the um, Satipatthana Sutta. Getting a but, little uh, robot-y again with the voice. Adam. The voice is changing again. It just happened. You were good for the whole time, but just past seconds. Turn into Elon Musk again. Oh, let me try this. Does that help him at all? No. Hmm. I wonder if it has something to do with like feedback or something, because it's, it's weird because it starts off good and then it doesn't seem like you're changing any settings and it becomes robotic. I'll meet myself. We'll see. All right. Well, I will remove every application that's running. Yeah, you sound good right now. No, you're good now, Don Morado. It's that's good now. Oh, that's good. Okay. All right. I'll, uh, I don't remember which one it was that I that I closed off. Uh, so, as we were beginning to talk about samatha and vipassana, the two words are not in the suttas much. In fact, I know of one place where the word samatha is used uh, in the suttas, but I don't know of any place where the word vipassana is used in the suttas, that it comes later. And when I say in the suttas, I'm talking about generally the old stuff, 
uh, which means uh, mostly the Majjhima Nikaya, uh, the Udana, uh, the Sutta Nipata. Those words don't appear. They don't appear until the Anguttara Nikaya, and they're mentioned often. And that um, basically what the Anguttara uh, is trying to do is trying to not make a distinction between the two. That the distinctions happened, I guess, because monks sat around and talked about it, and um, it became an issue. And so when it winds up in the Anguttara Nikaya, the Anguttara Nikaya, three or four sutras, are trying to make it a non-issue. All right, so one of those Anguttara Nikaya suttas says is that if you have Vipassana, then your job now is to do Samatha. If you have Samatha, now your job is to do Vipassana. And if you don't have either one of them, then develop them both together. And that um, this is also what is referred to as the direct approach versus the, the long approach. So think about a right triangle for a moment where you have uh, A, B, and C as the points. And that uh, the idea of the hypotenuse is to go from A to C. And that mostly what we do is we go from A to B and then from B to C, rather than going directly or taking the shortcut. Uh, because the shortcut, imagine that uh, in a city that you've got a vacant lot. Normally, because the, uh, the lots are not vacant, in fact, uh, the whole uh, block is crowded with buildings. The easiest way to get is to go all the way down one street and then all the way over to the other street. But if the um, uh, whole city block is completely empty, say it's a parking lot or something, then you can go directly across. And so this is the whole idea of the direct approach or the straight approach that the Buddha talks about, um, is to not go someplace that you don't need to go in order to get where you need to go from there. So, um, there are as many ways that we can think of that. And that in fact, uh, in ordinary life, people will say, oh, I want to be happy. The way to be happy is by getting a chick magnet so I can get a chick. And so I got to go buy a car. Well, look at how many steps he's got to go. First, he's got to get the car, and then the car is going to get the girl, and then the girl is going to make him happy. To where, in fact, he could just go straight to happiness and bypass the side issues. So, uh, Vipassana and um, Samatha are then ordinarily confused by people who are not taught that there is really no distinction between the two when it comes to practice, that they should be practiced together. The next thing to talk about, uh, possibly using the example of a camera, that if the camera is on a tripod, it's stable, and it will also then be able to take stable pictures. 
uh, that in fact one of the problems with putting cameras on cell phones originally was is that uh, a handheld camera is jerky. And so they have to actually have hardware and software for reframing so that the, uh, uh, <clears throat> the charge couple device is actually in the camera has a far more pixels than you're actually going to use. It is going to take a subset. And as the camera moves around, the software will reframe it so that it looks like the camera is steady and takes that movement out. And so this is what we're meaning by Samatha, is, is that if the mind is stable, then you can see clearly, just like if the camera is stable, then you don't have a uh, uh, messy uh, movement as a camera. You're roboting again. <laughs> You're roboting again. It's only been for a couple seconds, but yeah. Still roboting. Uh, I don't know if that's it. I thought I solved that problem. Oh, it just suddenly got better. That's good. Yep. Now it's good. good again. Yep, you're good. Okay. So. Um, the the state the, you could actually then use the word uh, samatha, and as a, the translation of it would be stability, or being at rest, being at peace, coming to a stop. And then vipassana is like the photo that's taken after the camera is stable. Does that make sense to you guys? Okay. If you can understand it like that, then we can say that, okay, if the mind is full of hindrances or if the mind has hindering thoughts right now, then your insight is not going to be especially good. If the mind has cloudiness or if the camera lens is dirty, would be another way uh, of uh, talking about it, that we've got to have the camera lens good and then also having the uh, camera stable so that it can take the photos. If the uh, mind has hindrances in them, which is exactly what happens with the way that meditation is taught in the West, it's taught uh, Basically, the two major methods it's taught uh, are, is in the Vajrayana of um, choiceless awareness and in the Mahasi method of uh, noting. Because if the student is just noting, then what they are noting is the hindrances. And choiceless awareness is the same thing because if you're teaching uh, the students to be choicelessly aware, the first thing that they'll do is be choicelessly aware of the hindrances. But the real point about choiceless awareness is after you're finished with the hindrances, then 
you could be choicelessly aware because the awareness has to do with being able to see correctly, which means that you're free with, from the hindrances and capable of seeing directly. Hey, Domerado. Yes. You're not roboting. I just had a question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Are you talking about choiceless awareness? Actually, yeah. Can you just tell me, like, what do you mean by choiceless awareness? I don't know. I've never been to Tibet. But I do know, based upon the results of many people who are practicing such a thing, is, is that they're not removing the hindrances. They become choicelessly aware, but they're not really aware because the mind is still cloudy, it's still dirty, it still has Okay. Okay. okay, and you're saying yeah. it's it's effective to be choicelessly aware only after you've managed to clean out the hindrances precisely that and that's that is, in, in a moment or you mean like is there like a, a level of permanence to that like you're waking up now no, and throughout your day you're not no, in the hindrance. no remember that the teaching of the buddha is all about what's happening right now right now and yeah. what's happening right now if you're practicing correctly then you're building the skills of doing things correctly in the right now yeah. Okay. And so in time, the skills improve of how to handle it, but everything else is going to be the same. The only thing that's really changed over time is the skill level of the student if he's practicing correctly. So, actually, have a, uh, oh, go ahead. Uh, just a question about that because, you know, what I hear about like the precepts, for example, are about like they're not necessarily in the moment of. Like, let's say you have like your time on the cushion versus uh, following the precepts where you might be trying to be mindful in that moment, but not necessarily doing like formal practice. And so I, I, I guess, how do you think about that? Like in terms of uh, the precepts and how that relates to your ability to actually have a successful sit, because that's not like in the moment, like you said, it's kind of like beforehand, like prep work beforehand, I guess. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, basically what I'm uh, referring to would be that if we would take the time to actually practice the skills, use it in this imagination about music. Uh, most people, let us say, use their mouth as a musical instrument when they're untrained in music and so what people are talking about is normally just noise that what the musician has to do is to stop playing his music in public and go into private and sit down in a quiet place and practice little things over and over and over again to build up the skills that no one but the actual uh, musician is really interested in. That in fact, many of the musicians... Robot. You're roboting. You're roboting. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. This seems like a time it's thing, honestly. On its own. It, yeah, it, it's coming in its own, and it, it's like by time. It seems like every five minutes or so, you're roboting. All right. So I'm every application that is unnecessary that using only Skype open. So right now only Skype is open. How how does it sound? Yeah, it's fine. 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 Yeah, it's
Oh, you just you, you just dropped down. And got yep. Hurt. I'm curious. Do you have uh, multiple like microphones that are active right now? This is the microphone that's active right now. Okay. Because I was wondering if there's like multiple microphones that are active at the same time. I wonder if they can be interacting with each other. So that was my yes. My that's guess. one of the reasons I've got uh, software that has several computers open on my screen and they do have feedback, but I've closed that application. So the only microphone that's on right now is either the one that's built in or the one that's plugged in. Got it. Well, you sound good now. It's okay now? All right. I tell you what, because Nick has his uh, a video on and is the only one who does, would you throw me a thumbs up or a thumbs down depending sure upon thing. the sound? Okay. Yeah. But I don't know what it, what to do about it other than piddle <laughs> with the computer. I haven't figured out what the problem is. Okay. So, um, going back to where we were in in the conversation, um, does anybody remember exactly where we were? You were talking about uh, you're using the metaphor of like a musician practicing by themselves. Right. Okay. So. When, when the kid is alone practicing the scales, when he's alone practicing chords, he doesn't want mom in the room. Doesn't want the teachers around. That this is one of the reasons why in music schools, they have a whole lot of little rooms for people to go in privately so that they can practice. This is what we mean then about uh, what is really often in the West called meditation, a much better word for using would be practice. And that we have to practice this stuff over and over and over again. What are we going to practice? Well, in this regard, we're talking about practicing samatha and practicing vipassana. If we practice well, then when we're walking down the street or walking, let us say, into a piano store, then we can sit down and play. There, we're not practicing. Okay, so we have to practice in order to get the skills up so that then we can use those skills if we remember to use them. And so one of the skills that we want to develop is the skill of sati, which is the skill of remembering. Remember to practice the other, uh, to perform the other skills that we have been practicing before. So, um, when people are practicing uh, things like uh, uh, vipassana meditation, the whole idea, the word vipassana, just by itself, means that the student is practicing without the skills that he needs to practice Vipassana. And what is the skill that he needs to practice Vipassana is Samatha. In other words, when the mind is really busy all back and forth like that, it's hard to see what the mind is doing. We have to clean the mind out. And the way that we do that, then by cleaning the mind out, that's Samatha. And so cleaning the mind and then taking a look at what's going on is what this idea is um, all about, uh, depending upon the skill level. So you develop a little bit of skill in Samatha, then you do a little bit of Vipassana, then you do a little bit more Samatha based upon the Vipassana, 
and it goes back and forth like that. The Sanatha and the Vipassana must be practiced more or less together. Uh, an example of that would be that in the beginning, the student really doesn't know what hindrances are. They have to develop the skill of finding out what hindrances are. And once they are able to remove something that they used to think was not a hindrance, and now they see that it is a hindrance, when they remove that, then they can have insight deeper. But guess what? The insight was to see that, oh, I used to think that this was not a hindrance, and now I see that it is. And so that's the insight is to recognize what is a hindrance and what is not a hindrance. And you say, well, wait a minute, you have to have samatha to do that. Well, yes, that's why it needs to be practiced this way. Um, that some people eventually learn how to be a one-man band. But he, whatever he was doing, he practiced one instrument and got that good. And then he practiced another instrument and got that good. And then he put them back and forth together so that he could play them at the same time. This is basically what we're talking about. All right. Now, someone has mentioned Vipassana jhanas versus Samatha jhanas. Well, if the suttas doesn't talk about Vipassana or Samatha, then there, then there is no distinction in the suttas between a Vipassana jhana and a Samatha jhana. But there is some value in understanding that at a point. Okay. And that is... Okay, so the sound has gone bad again. What can I do? Perhaps if I go off and then come back on, I'll... That helps. Yep. Okay. Seems like just going silent is something that helps. We'll have to remember that. All right. So um, originally, the way that the Buddha practiced himself was uh, due to the education that he had gotten mostly from Brahmin teachers. And what he practiced then was basically Samatha only, and he never got any Vipassana other than the Vipassana that he needed to move through the jhanas. Okay. Then there is another way of looking at the Vipassana jhanas as once someone reaches a certain level that we can kind of define now as the first jhana. Once we reach the first jhana, then we can, through Vipassana, pay attention to the things that are paid attention to at the various levels. Now, the Buddha does mention that, in fact, that the first jhana is, in fact, the path. That if we can develop enough samatha and enough um, uh, Vipassana to enter and abide in first jhana, then the question would be, since a beginner, his job is to remove the hindrances 
what does a, 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 let us say, an intermediate student do once he's removed the hindrances? Well, Bhikkhu Buddhadasa talks about that in the sense of making the mind fit for work. Making the mind fit for work means that we have enough stability of mind through the removal of the hindrances. And so uh, if the mind is now fit for work, what are we going to work on? That's a very interesting question. The answer to that lies in Sutta number 111, which is one by one as they occur. All right. If a student still has hindrances, then his Vipassana is going to be um, clouded by those hindrances. But if he has enough uh, Vipassana to see that this hindrances are clouding what's going on and I can't see clearly, then they remove the hindrances. Okay. And the number one item that is in the list of items of the first jhana is removal of the hindrances. And so everything has to be done with a mind that's clean enough that doesn't have hindrances. And so let's go over what the hindrances are just for a short moment. And that is if the mind is restless or bored, if the mind wants something, if we're thinking about something other than what we're doing right now. So being in the past, being into the future, thinking about what we're going to be doing later and all of that kind of stuff are hindrances that prevent us from seeing what the mind is doing. So we have to remove the hindrances. And basically what we mean by that is coming into the present moment to be here now. Now, Tanisaro, Ajahn Tanisaro has made sure that the students understand that being in the present moment is not enough. It's just the starting point. Being in the present moment basically means to be free from the hindrances. All right. So in the one by one as they occur, what we're actually going to be looking at and for are jhana factors. And so the first jhana factor that we're going to be looking for is applied and sustained thought. The applying the applying of the mind to um, being here now and sustaining it on that. Also applying the mind to make sure that the mind is free from hindrances. And uh, if the mind is free from hindrances, then we can say, yeah, right now it's free from hindrances. I keep applying and keep sustaining. So the next item that we need to look at is the issue of uh, the fact that these hindrances are unwholesome. And when the mind is free from the hindrances, then the mind is in a wholesome state. But Anapanasati Sutta goes one step further than that by talking about intentionally gladdening the mind, intentionally brightening the mind up. And basically what this means is, is that we're actually going to intentionally start talking ourselves into feeling good. And so we have thoughts like, this is really good. And we begin to feel good. 
All right. And so by feeling good, this is the second item on the list after the applied and sustained thought, or maybe the third applied, sustained. And then the next item is sukha. Now, sukha is actually defined in the suttas as safety, security, comfort, and satisfaction. Well, in our normally normal lives, when people are going around, there's always a residual little bit of fear. Oh, I've got something to do. Oh, I've got some place to go. We also are generally not comfortable. And we're generally not satisfied. We're dissatisfied. In fact, dissatisfaction is the reason why people are interested in Buddhism. In fact, that's the reason why anybody would be interested in a, in a religion is because whatever they've got in their life now, it ain't good enough and you want something better. We're dissatisfied. And so what we're actually going to practice in is getting the mind into a state of satisfaction so that we could feel satisfied. That in fact, being satisfied is actually being free from the hindrances. And so as we progress with the Eightfold Noble Path, in fact, what we've done now is we've already talked about several items on the Eightfold Noble Path. One is sati, to wake up and remember to look. The second one is, is to look to investigate, to begin to understand the distinction between what is a hindrance and what is not a hindrance. And basically, the easy way to understand that is, is that I'm thinking about what's happening right now that's less likely to be a hindrance, that I'm thinking about someplace else, some other time. But if I'm thinking about this moment here, at this time now, then the likelihood of I'm being out of hindrances is greater. Okay, so this is the first way of beginning to understand, is, is that um, we begin to develop sukha by being okay with this present moment. Right now, everything is good enough. Right now, I'm comfortable. Right now, I'm satisfied. And we keep practicing that over and over and over again. And these three things run and circle around each other. They run and circle around in the sense of sati helps develop uh, looking. Or uh, the word in Pali is ditti, samaditi, to actually do an investigation. The word is translated into English as view, except that we use the word view for all kinds of things, like a worldview uh, or a viewpoint or a way of thinking, this kind of thing. But actually, in this regard, we're actually talking about look at what the mind is doing right now. Look at what the body is doing right now. Look at the feelings right now. What are the objects of the mind? And so this is the investigation that we do in order to determine, is this thought a hindrance or not? And if it is a hindrance, then we throw that out and replace it with a wholesome thought. And that replacement is actually, for the beginner, quite a lot of work. This is why it's called right noble effort. Right noble effort is to take the hindrance that we've already determined as a hindrance and take it out, throw it out, and put a happy thought in 
instead. This hacky thought then begins to develop so that uh, several things happen. One is, is that if we have happy thoughts, we're basically talking ourselves into feeling good and we start to feel good. Now, everybody can understand that the reason why we feel bad is because we talk ourselves into feeling bad and we've been talking ourselves into feeling bad basically our whole lives. We have confirmation bias and we're biased towards feeling bad. We're, we're biased towards being dissatisfied. The big business wants us to be dissatisfied so we'll buy their product. Government wants you to be dissatisfied so you'll vote for them or at least not rebel. Um, religion really wants you to be dissatisfied because if you're satisfied, religion's got no value at all. And even education wants you to be sat dissatisfied so that you can then go get an education. Whether you feel uh, satisfied after the education is not really important. In fact, they would prefer that after you're educated, you're still dissatisfied so that you'll get more education, still be dissatisfied and get even more. So we have first grade and then we got primary school and then we got middle school and then we got high school and then we've got bachelor's degrees and master's and PhDs and people are still not satisfied. Good, you need more education <laughs> is the way. Uh, but within the teaching of the Buddha, what we're looking for is, no, we need just enough. We need just enough of whatever it is that we need so that we can become satisfied. So once we get into the state of satisfied, then the next item would be that we begin to develop an attitude of being successful. That every one of us was born as an infant a victim. We couldn't talk, we couldn't feed ourselves, we couldn't walk, and we had to be taken care of. We had to be nourished. If we weren't nourished, we'd die. But then along comes school, along comes a new baby or whatever, and our infancy in nurturing is now changed to childhood, which is do what you're told to do, and we remain being victims. Like go do your homework, clean up your room, go to school, and we do those things out of ignorance because we're victims. But if we practice these three things over and over again, which is wake up, look at what you're doing, and making a change. Wake up, take a look at what you're doing, and make a change, make an improvement. Get yourself out of the fear that you normally have because a lot of students will call and they'll say, oh, I have this anxiety, or oh, I'm in a panic attack. Well, that's just fear. What we need to do is talk ourselves out of the fear by recognizing that the room that you're in right now or wherever you are is actually safe. There's no bill collectors, there's no bosses. We need to get ourselves into a quiet place that is safe so that we can actually feel safe. Well, guess what? That safety is going in the direction of samatha. That if you're unsafe, then you're agitated. You're anxious. You're in a panic mode. How can you do vipassana when you're agitated? So we have to get ourselves in the state of feeling safe. 
And once we have that feeling of safety and security and comfort and being satisfied with this moment, a new item is added to the list. And that item that's added is Sama Sankapa. The Sama Sankapa in the Pali uh, is not well transmitted uh, into English. One of the words that's used is right intention. Now, the word intention has some problems with it because you can have intentions to rob the bank. And so it's got to, uh, we have to look at it in a certain way. And the way that I talk about it is attitude. We have to change that base attitude of being a victim into the attitude of being a winner. And that feeling of winner, that feeling of on top of it, that feeling of success. That is what then allows the, um, the sukha to turn into pity. And if you notice now, we have actually talked about all of the factors of the first jhana. The factors are, number one, removal of the hindrances and put the mind into a happy state by talking ourselves into a happy state. Then the second one is uh, to be in a happy state. And then the third one is that wow factor of, wow, I can do this. I can, in fact, get myself into a happy state. All right. Now, the applying of the mind is the applying of getting into that happy state and then sustaining it. Applied and sustained thought. So this is actually the first item that we're going to work with in the higher jhanas is how is my applying of the mind? How is my ability to stay in this state of joy? Because if we can apply and sustain and apply and sustain over and over and over again in our practice, then guess what? This stuff will kind of spontaneously arise in the mind just like hindrances, except that now the mind spontaneously goes into a wholesome state kind of just because we remember to. And so these jhana factors are, uh, have both samatha and vipassana built into it. The vipassana is, is to be able to understand what is a hindrance. Then the next vipassana would be to understand how to get ourselves into feeling good and then understanding how we got ourselves into feeling like we're on top of the world. And then we begin to understand that I can apply and sustain and apply and sustain. And so as we're going into the first jhana and establishing the first jhana, the primary thing that we're going to look at is applying and sustaining our thoughts, continuing to have wholesome thoughts, one wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought. And then once we have the applied and sustained thoughts really down, and we have the benefit of the feelings that go along with that applying and sustaining the thought into the wholesome, we don't have to think so much anymore. In fact, what we do is we put that item down by putting gaps in the thoughts. And there's various ways in that we can go from the first jhana into the second jhana. But the primary item is, is that if you feel really, really, really good, 
then that's what we start to look at is look how good I feel rather than now I don't have to talk myself into feeling really good. I actually do feel really good. And that feeling of feeling really good would be then the second jhana. And again, there's some vipassana mixed in with that in the sense of recognizing that I can quieten the mind and just be here in a really, really lovely state. And so the third, uh, the second, the third, and the fourth jhana is all about feelings to where the first jhana is all about getting the mind fit for work. And so how we move into these other jhanas then is by taking while we're in the first jhana and taking various objects. And so the object of how good do I feel would then be uh, the second jhana. The third jhana would be how relaxed and comfortable I feel. And then uh, the fourth jhana would be in a uh, deep state of balance. So the reason that I'm describing it this way is to um, uh, recognize that Vipassana and Samatha are not really two different jhana systems, but we don't have to go through the samatha from the first to the second to the third to the fourth because all along there's a there's there's um, uh, vipassana mixed in with it. But if we have really solid good control, then we stop and then we start it again. That's the way worse. This is even worse. Yeah. Okay, I've got this microphone on. How is it now? That microphone didn't help. Hmm. There you go. There you go. Okay, so. Let's look at what you would think of as a Vipassana jhana would be that once the mind is in the first jhana, we intentionally take on the objects of the higher jhana. Now, when we do that, they're normally going to be momentary, but the higher jhanas are almost always momentary anyway, that no one will stay in the fourth jhana for very long, like three, four seconds. And so if we take the objects that are associated with the fourth jhana, then we can actually be in the fourth jhana momentarily out of the first jhana. And so from the perspective of the first jhana, the first items that we take is applied and sustained thought. Then in the second jhana, we take pity as the object, or how good do I feel? And then the third jhana is to take the object of, wow, everything is okay, or back to the sukha. Sukha would then be the object of the third jhana. And then when the sukha melts into everything is just okay which would be opaca, that would be the fourth jhana, 
And from that place, we could begin to really see how the mind works. And so um, this distinction between Samatha and Vipassana didn't exist in the time of the Buddha. It existed only after people were talking about it and began to, uh, to look at things. And then so their new sutras were written to say, don't make that distinction. Because there's really no distinction there. You can't do one without the other. That we have to do them both together. And that stability then comes with the jhana, but the stability comes because we can see that the camera is not stable. So you take a bad picture because the camera is not stable, you recognize the camera is not stable, you make it stable, and then now you can take a better picture. So that would be right there, the combination of Samatha and Vipassana. And that they're both used together. And that um, as we progress, then we can take these higher objects. And so uh, the important point to make is, is that the first jhana should be the basis. And that not only is it the basis or the foundational point for the higher jhanas, it should also be the foundation or the basis for one's life. An example of that is, is that while you're, when you can get your mind into the first jhana and you know, because you've checked it off, yeah, no hindrances, yeah, applied the mind, sustained the mind, I have really good joy, and I know I can do it, so that we've got that first jhana wired, from there, we can actually get up out of seclusion. Can you actually stand up and maintain that first jhana? Can you take a few first steps? Can you actually get yourself into the first jhana doing a walking meditation? And so what we begin to do then is with that first jhana, we reintroduce the world to our practice. But always the commitment is to get the mind back into first jhana because that's got everything that we need. It's got all of the jhana factors built right into the first jhana as well as that we can actually walk around. At one point, in fact, um, the story, there's a story about uh, a, a well-known teacher, I don't know who he is, or I've forgotten, a well-known teacher and his very favorite students are in the car driving together. And the driver is the one who is practicing and he would tell uh, his teacher, now I'm in first jhana. Well, that's okay. But if he says, now I'm in second jhana, he can't do that because th that part of the mind is cut off. We can't talk in the second jhana, but we could walk in the second jhana. That about the farthest that walking meditation can take us is in the second jhana. But when this dude in the car then says, I'm in third jhana, he can't do that either. And in the fourth jhana, he should not be driving a car. I mean, if I were a cop, I would bust him on DUJ, <laughs> driving while in jhana, because he's very dangerous to do that. <laughs> and so uh, I would say then that, that the fourth jhana is not a super duper high attainment at all, because it's available to you within the first jhana that the attainment that we make, if there is an attainment, is to get the mind peaceful 
and quiet and satisfied and on top of the world. And then we can do the Vipassana by taking the various objects of the second, the third, and the fourth jhana while we're just maintaining the first jhana. They won't be long, but they'll be short, but you can get the value out of the fourth jhana by seeing what's needing to be seen. And so always the baseline is to get the mind into the first, first jhana and then learn to maintain that, learn to sustain it, or learn to come back to it over and over and over again. And this is referred to, pardon? Uh, what are we seeing in the fourth jhana? Well, the jhana factors again are number one, free from the hindrances so that you don't have any dirty, ugly, harmful thoughts. That we have pleasant, happy thoughts. The second one is to talk ourselves with those thoughts into feeling good. So the first one is just to get the hindrances out, clean house. The second one is, is then to take the language that we have left and be very wholesome with it very happy with it. And if we have a wholesome, happy language, then we begin to feel wholesome and happy. We begin to feel, if we talk ourselves, oh, this is such a safe place, I really like this, everything is easy going and no problems at all, then we begin to feel safe and secure. If we talk ourselves into let us adjust the posture and get ourselves all set up straight and everything like that, then I can feel comfortable. With, with the safe, secure, comfortable, we can become satisfied. And those three things, safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied, is the sukha element. And we practice that over and over and over again until we can change our attitude of, oh, I can do this. I, I'm, I can do it. Yeehaw, I can do it. That's the kind of expression that we have. That, yeehaw, I can do this. That's the samasankapa. That's the pity. That's the confidence or the swada that we're developing. Okay, so those are the, uh, the factors of, of jhana. And that when we're in that state, then we take those various factors as an object. And the object then in the first jhana is applied and sustained thought. And then we take the sukha or how good we feel. And it, we could feel so good and we get bouncy and jittery. I mean, the uh, pity just arises in, in tingling sensations. It's just really, really nice. And we, what, we watch how we feel. And that's the second jhana. And then the third jhana is just relaxation, coming out of that high into completely satisfied, like, oh, what a wonderful world. Everything is okay, no problems at all. But we don't have that as a language. We have it as a feeling of well-being, a sense of well-being would be the third jhana. And then the fourth jhana would be really hardcore samatha, which means complete stability. Because um, even Pitti and Sukha is a little bit of to do, but just kind of nothing at all is the fourth jhana, all right? And we can experience that 
by developing only the first jhana and then taking these other objects along the way. But the baseline should be the first jhana. If we could get into the first jhana, that's wonderful. Can we do two things once we get it? And that is number two, sustain it. And when we drop out of it, get it again, apply again. Keep applying and sustaining. And so the applied is going to be the, the, um, uh, the sukha. Because when you get going with this, all you have to do is remember to feel good and you just pop right into first jhana. It becomes really easy to do. You can do it within a breath or two. But we have to be able to control the mind to throw those hindrances out that fast. And one of the ways that we can do that is by having the thought, oh, I don't have to think about that. I don't have to think about the job. I don't have to think about the boss. I don't have to think about Aunt Susie. I don't have to think about that argument. I don't have to think about anything. I don't have to think about it. Wow, what a relief. <laughs> I just don't have to think about it. Yes, Tyler, go ahead. Uh, so the question, because, you know, when I was, when I was first introduced to the jhanas or first learned about them, I always heard that being eight jhanas or the eight stages of, of jhana. Um, and uh, yeah, is there, can you help me like clarify that confusion of like why I may have heard eight stages in the past? Because you read something that was written by a Westerner who had never been <laughs> ordained. <laughs> All right, fair enough. <laughs> There are no, no place in any of the suttas are uh, they're listed as eight. They, they list them, in fact, specifically as first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana. And then the rest of the list are things that you can do while in fourth jhana. Mm. All right. Um, let's, Let's not spend a lot of time on that, but I will at least go through the list. Okay, one of them has to do with, uh, let us say, that the, the, the body and the space around the body become very, very loose. That when we're in ordinary life, we know the big difference between what is my body and what is outside the body. For instance, the air that's coming from the fan or the touch of the cloth of the shirt and all of that. Now, this is referred to in the English translation as infinite space. And I want to make sure that you understand that nothing is infinite, not even in mathematics. The word infinite only means division by zero, and there never really is a zero. And so nothing really is infinite. In other words, the stars are uncountable, but they're not infinite. You just can't count them all. And so what we would rather use would be vast. And so the feeling of vastness, the feeling of connection, the feeling of being at one with your environment would be one of the jhana factors of the fourth jhana. Once we're, once we're that stable, okay? Another one would be infinite consciousness. But remember, no such thing as infinite consciousness. And what we're really talking about is the boundaries between sense consciousness and perception. That uh, perception and non-perception means that we are beginning to understand the way that we perceive things 
which means the way that we put things together. So let me take a moment and talk and talk a little bit about Paticca Samupada because in fact these jhanas that we have been talking about is ways of seeing how the mind works. So in the first jhana we start working with being able to feel the way that we want to feel. Let me change microphones and see if that works. Say something? Uh, still a little robotic. Is it up there now? Not really. <laughs> I, I can understand you, but I don't know if I'm wrong. So, we were talking about infinite consciousness. Let us make sure that we understand that actually the word consciousness in English has two different definitions to it. One is the consciousness of sensory awareness, and the other is uh, the consciousness of what we've made out of sensory awareness. The example that I use is, oh, I can see that. But if I name it that as a tree, then the word tree is something that I've come up with out of my perception. So another way of saying it is, I see what you mean. All right, so as we're going into the jhanas, we can begin to understand that what we see is not what we get. What we see is what we make out of what we see. And that's perception, the making of the understanding. That when we were born, we had no background, we knew no language, and how we learn language is by learning a word and then remembering it and bringing it back again. All right. So that's perception. We learn language through perception and we bring it into uh, in the Pali. The word is uh, salayatana, which means the internal senses. And so as we progress through the jhana, we begin to see how we invent things. We can see that perception. And then we begin to bring it down to the point that there's very little perception left. And the only thing that the perception that's left is the perception of directly the sense consciousness. And then we can turn the perception off altogether and then there's just nothing. Because we're not paying attention to the sense consciousness and we're not having any thoughts. And so there's no perception at all. And we can begin to play with in the first jhana, our perception to see what's really going on in the mind. So the sequence is, is that we see it, we think it up, and to do that, we use our past, and then we come to a new conclusion. And that conclusion impacts us so that we have a particular feeling. Well, if that feeling was already built into the perception because of our past, that means that we're out of control of our feelings, that our past controls the feelings that we have now. 
And so what we can do then is by being in the present moment over and over again, we learn that we can control our feelings because we can perceive things in a wholesome way so that we have wholesome feelings. And so this is the value of these momentary high jhanas is so that we can get enough stability that we can see how the mind works. That what we actually see does not make us feel. What we see makes us put things together in an understanding, and then the understanding is what makes us feel. And so if we can control how we see things, like in the first jhana, we're actually now controlling how we see things or how we perceive things or what the result, our understanding is, then that allows us to feel really good. <clears throat> And so this is the relationship between the jhanas and um, Vipassana and Samatha is, is that we need to work with the first jhana because that's where everything lies. Primarily getting rid of the hindrances, getting the mind into a good state that we're already by getting into the first jhana beginning to modify our perception. We're modifying our past in a way we're putting in a brand new past and it's easier to use the recent past than it is to use the really, really old past. But we get into the habits of using the really old past and what we're actually practicing now is giving ourselves a new set of memories so that we remember happy things rather than remembering the sad things, the garbage. And so by practicing over and over again, we're actually modifying our past. Not the past that actually did happen, because we don't know what actually did happen. Nobody, I mean, you take two people who were adults that had an event that happened when they were in their childhood, and they'll disagree about the details. And so what really happened was never the issue, is how we perceived the past. And so we can begin to modify that so that we can perceive with a new past. We can create the new past and forget about the old one. Because the new one is wholesome and the old one is all over the place. And so this is the way that we work Vipassana and Samatha together. Get the stability, then take a look. Get some more stability, take another look. Get some more stability, take another look. That's how these two things work together. So, uh, Nick, do you have any questions? Uh, you answered all my questions, actually. I'm not sure if you meant to, but your, your tail went right into it. That's very okay. helpful. How about you, Tyler? Everything okay? It's all good. Yeah, really, really enjoyed that. Um, I, I do kind of have like the way you talked about how earlier, how like people don't like to talk about the genres or a lot of like traditionally genres aren't talked about. The reason I thought it was always not talked about was because it could kind of get like a, a mindset of like attainments and kind of like uh, kind of one one upsmanship and I thought that was the reason why but it was interesting to hear you describe it in terms of like the magical thinking mm -hmm. um instead so yeah that, that was just not really been a question just kind of an observation 
Well, if you, never mind what you've actually done, if you advertise that you've done something that the Western mind thinks is an attainment, and in fact, a way of, of looking at it is, is that uh, the teachings of the Buddha, we don't attain anything. Then in fact, it's always just a dead loss. Nothing new comes. Everything about the teaching of the Buddha is a dead loss. What does that mean? We lose the hindrances. We lose our past. We lose our future. We, <laughs> we, uh, we, we, we lose our self-identity. We, we lose all kinds of things, and there's nothing to be gained from the teaching of the Buddha. And yet Western mentality is all about attainments. Attaining a sotapan, attaining an arahat, attaining a jhana, attain this, attain that. Uh, having this past life experience, etc., like that. So people have a very much attainment-oriented position. And so when somebody comes by and says, oh, I've had jhana, then everybody around them who is attainment-oriented is going to either be jealous or uh, uh, um, non-believing. If they, if they don't believe it, then they're going to go into the hindrance of putting somebody down. And so this is why uh, these things are best not talked about. There's another point, and that is, is that if you claim that you've had some attainment, like Arahat or something like that, and then all of a sudden uh, you're, you're uh, doing a hindrance or uh, having an unwholesome uh, uh, <laughs> pity party or die tribe or you get angry or something like that, then we'll, we'll go into the confirmation bias of the sense of, oh, I'm supposed to be an Arahat, therefore I'm not supposed to do any of that stuff, therefore I'm not going to look at it, because if I do look at it, then I'll find something that proves me wrong and I'm not an Arahat after all. And so it's better not to claim things. To recognize that we're all students, we're all okay, we're all, and it doesn't matter what attainment anybody's got. Now, one of the things that we can put with that is, is that a lot of people, especially on Reddit, there's a stream entry list where people are talking about it, and the funny thing is, is that they don't have a clue about what stream entry is, because they think that it is an attainment, or they think that they can become a, a sotapan because they had an experience or a one-time event. It's like breaking a mirror. Once the mirror is broken, well, guess what? There's a lot of mirrors. <laughs> There's a lot of mirrors. And just because you broke this one doesn't mean much of anything. Now, a better way of understanding what a sotapan is, basically, is one who is really super duper enthusiastic about the Dhamma. Enthusiasm, eagerness, eager to hear the Dhamma, eager to practice the Dhamma. That's what a Sotapan is, is someone who actually has changed his lineage from the lineage of being in the world into the lineage of being in the Dhamma. That's what we care about. We care about what's happening this moment. Don't care so much about the past or the future. How am I doing right now? This is what a soda pond is. 
is someone who is eager for practicing this present moment. Well, sometimes you're like that, sometimes you're not. Sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you're a soda pond, sometimes you're not. But it's not a cut and dried or a hardcore, now that this has happened, I'll never be a non-soda pond again. No, it's always, it's touch and go, and touch and go, and touch and go, and now touch, hold and go, hold and go, hold and go, and then grasp and go, and grasp and go. It's just back and forth. And so if we do that, then we can say, oh, it's okay that I fell out and I'm not a soda pond right now. But because I'm willing to admit it, because I can see it, I can get back into it. But if I already demand that I'm a soda pond, then I, my confirmation bias will prevent me from being able to see clearly. And so it's better not to put these labels on ourselves, never mind advertising them to other people. Just claiming the label inside your own mind is a, um, a hindrance. And so that label really doesn't mean anything. The question is, can you stop being angry? Can you put an end to your anger? Can you put an end to your greed? That's more issue. And the, and the point is, well, sometimes I can put my anger to rest and sometimes I get angry. Let me start working on it so that I can catch the anger when it arises and stop it. Which is exactly the way that we're practicing in private when I see a hindrance come up, because hindrances can come up as anger. That I can have a, uh, I can read a post where somebody's trashing me, and then I'm sitting in meditation and I remember that post and get angry, and there's nobody around. And so that's the time to, to, to recognize the anger is when it's there so we could put it away. Never mind, I don't have to worry about that guy. He's not a problem anyway. He doesn't even understand what we're talking about. Let him go, right? That's how we practice, is to keep the mind clean of the hindrances of greed and ill will. Now, in the, the system of Sotapan, Sotagam, Aragon, and Arahat, the Sotapan is the one who is dedicated to finding his anger, the one who is dedicated to finding his greed. And when he keeps doing that over and over again, he can then begin to mollify and shut down that anger and greed so that it only comes up occasionally. And then he practices further, and then the anger will come up in his mind, but he doesn't let it out. This is what they mean by the non-returner. So a soda pond, even though he's a soda pond, he can be seven or eight times not a soda pond, and then when he is a soda pond, he'll shut his mouth. So the question would be, when you're angry, how quickly can you recognize that anger and shut your mouth? And then change the way that you feel from being angry, which is an unwholesome state, into being in a joyous, happy state. That's the way to practice. And so these attainments really don't mean anything. They're, they're kind of like mileposts or ways that we can look at it to figure out what things are what. But to say, I am a soda pine is a completely meaningless statement. Because that I am 
is all over the place. Sometimes you're a soda pod, sometimes you're not. Then, in fact, the whole quality of understanding what personality view is, is to understand that you're not one person. You're not the same person who woke up this morning, and you'll not be the same person when you go to sleep tonight. That we're all over the place. An example would be, write down all the attributes about you. Maybe on one side, all the positive, and then on the next uh, side, all the unwholesome. Did that do that? Was that doing that? No. recognize it. When you are a sotapan, recognize that. And stop trying to put things in a permanent state because things are not permanent. Everything's in flux. And who you are is in flux also. And so the way that we practice correctly is to get the mind very stable and then look at what we're doing, and then getting it more stable, and then look at what we're doing. Always the investigation, rather than conclusion. That that's another way of saying it, is the world view, whether it's a wrong view or an ordinary right view, is time-oriented over a long period of time, to where noble right view is what's happening right now, what's going on now. That's the only thing that we have to worry about. The past is gone, the future is yet to be, doesn't exist. Let's deal with what's happening right now. Is my mind clean right now? Can I clean it out right now? That's all we need to work on. Okay. Guys, thank you very much. That was awesome. Thanks so much. Okay. We'll see you later. See you later, guys. Nice to see you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.